Good morning, citizens. Didn't quite know how to respond to that one, did you? You're expecting me to say good morning, family. Good morning, church. And part of the reason that we talk about citizenship is because of what we're talking about in a new series that we start today called Summit. We're going to be uh, talking and studying and learning and thinking about the very best sermon ever given. Not mine, Jesus's. Uh, We're going to spend eight weeks learning about the king and more precisely, his kingdom. And if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, if you've been immersed into him, you are a part of that kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. You and I, wherever we're from, whatever our background is, whatever our skin color is, whatever our thoughts and opinions are, whatever our gifts and abilities are, have this one thing in common in Christ, that we are a part of an eternal, forever kingdom. It's true in two senses. It's true in the here and now, and it's also true in the future not yet, then these two things can be true at once. So I hope that you'll dive in and prepare to, you know, educate your mind and think a little bit, but more than that, I hope you're ready to put into practice kingdom living. That's what this series is all about. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, now Matthew is a book that of the one of the four Gospels. What makes the book of Matthew so unique and different is that it's written to a predominantly Jewish audience. It's written by a Jewish author, a tax collector named Matthew, also called Levi. And his experience with Christ as a Jew and as a writing to a Jewish people is something that's a little bit lost on us as an audience of, I think, 100% Gentiles. Uh, we might miss some of the things that Matthew and his Jewish audience would have immediately recognized. Uh, in fact, there's this interesting parallel. So we have the Bible. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament into in one book. And as Christians, we're New Testament, New Covenant people. We, we, that's not to say we don't believe the old law. We certainly do. We just believe that it was fulfilled by Jesus. And because it was fulfilled by Jesus, we live under a new covenant. But the Jewish audience, they did not live in this way. They had a Bible that was only part of what you and I have. The first five books of their Bible is called the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when you, when the Jewish audience, knowing those books so well, in fact, most of them would have had them memorized, they will see some, some very interesting rhyming and calling back as Matthew goes through his first five chapters. First, Genesis, the book of origins. Uh, the book of genealogies, the undoing of most daily Bible reading plans. It's the book of beginnings. Well, in Matthew chapter 1, we have the beginning, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Of course, Luke has one as well, but the, there's the, the be- beginnings, the origin, not of man, but of the son of man and how he came into being. Exodus is the book of escape. 
the leaving of the, the, the people of God, the Israelites, from uh, the slavery and bondage and capture into or out of the land of Egypt. Matthew chapter 2 has the story of Jesus and his family escaping the murderous tyrant King Herod and escaping to Egypt and then returning out of Egypt. A Jewish reader would say, oh, there's something similar there. Uh, the, the book of Leviticus... The book of the law, the book of, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees based their righteousness upon. In Matthew chapter 3, we see John the Baptist coming out and chastising the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who would have studied so intently that law, admonishing them, not for their lack of knowledge, but for their lack of understanding and knowing the true God. Matthew chapter 3 prepares the way, just as the law leads us to uh, the need for a Savior, John the Baptist leads us and prepares the way for Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. The book of Numbers is the story of lots of numbers in the book of Numbers, easy easy title to, to understand there, but also included in that is the story of the account of the Israelite people and their wanderings in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, the story of the temptation of Jesus. And where is he tempted? In the wilderness. So, so you see already the Jewish audience, before they get to the Sermon on the Mount, before they hear of this, what they would have considered to be a rabbi, when they have read this sermon, they have already been seeing echoes and, and, and callbacks to a law which with they were so intimately familiar the book of Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. And here we have Jesus in this sermon about to tell about a, not to abolish the old law, but to fulfill it and talk about a, a new way of living in the kingdom, a new law. So now that we're in Matthew chapter 5, we've been introduced. I just Go through all of that so that you get the mindset of the Jewish reader who's reading what Matthew has written, thinking, wow, this really is, I've I've been here before, I've seen this before, but now Matthew has prepared his reader to receive the feast, the spiritual bread of which Jesus is about to feed them. If you look at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5, it starts in this way, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Now, there's a few words that we want to pick out here in these introductory verses of the Sermon on the Mount. First is this idea that Jesus saw the crowds. Now, now there's two different ways to see a crowd... Uh, there's, there's a way of seeing a crowd that looks at the whole group and, and looks at full seats and full pews. That's not what this is referring to. When Matthew talks about that he saw the crowds, it was referring to Jesus as a rabbi who saw the individuals on the mountain who saw the families, the men and the women and the children. He saw them and he loved them and he knew their deepest need. 
I, I like a, a phrase that Gen Z uses. I, I see you. I see you. Well, what that means is, I, I feel you. I, I know that you're there. I'm acknowledging your presence. I get where you're coming from. And, and that is closer to what Matthew is saying. Jesus sees you. Someone referred to this morning about being in the crowd, and sometimes you have a good week, sometimes you have a bad week. Sometimes you can come to a crowd like this and feel a little lost in the crowd. But Jesus, if you're in relationship with him, you need to know that he sees you. He knows your struggles, and he knows your heartaches, and he knows the tribulations, and he knows how you're being tempted, and he knows what you have been through, and the struggles that you are going through, but he sees you. Matthew 4 tells us that there were great multitudes who followed Jesus from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and elsewhere. So, so he saw not just a group of familiar people, but a group of unfamiliar people. Within that same crowd were disciples and perfect strangers on the spectrum of humanity. And Jesus saw all of them. He'll later say, Matthew will later say in Matthew 9.36, that Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees them, and he sees us. It's impossible to get lost in a crowd with Jesus. Second, we, we understand that this was on a mountain. Now, that may be somewhat significant to people who live in a, a state that is 99.9% flat. Uh, no offense to the uh, Mount Sunflower fans out there, but that's, that's kind of a rolling hill. We don't really have mountains. It's hard for us to appreciate mountains. It's one of the reasons we take our teens to camp in the mountains, so they appreciate the, the beauty of a mountain. But to the Jewish audience, a mountaintop is where God came to work. It, it, it was on a mountain where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, Mount Moriah. It, it was on Mount Sinai where Moses met with God to receive the law and to give the law. It's on a mountain where Jesus will later be transfigured before his own disciples. That mountain is today, not in the scriptures, but today called Mount Tabor. It was on a mountain where the prophet Elijah defeated Baal and the prophets of Baal, more precisely, on Mount Carmel. And on this mountain will be no different. When John uh, Matthew mentions a mountain, he is not just giving the geography of the location. He is saying, pay attention. God's showing up here. And so, as we understand, this Sermon on the Mount is a unique place given by a unique preacher. And, lastly, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... It wasn't that Jesus saw the people, but that he taught the people. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, they will say that they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. That they, that they heard in Jesus something that they didn't... They had plenty of rabbis, plenty of teachers, plenty of preachers, plenty of prophets. But when Jesus taught, they were astonished because he taught as one in authority and not as their teachers of the law. There was something within Jesus. There was something about his passion, something about his voice, something about his seriousness, something about his intensity that he came to teach them out of his love for them. 
It wasn't that he just saw them, it that he knew what their need was. And so he's giving them and he's giving us that which we most need eternally. We keep reading. Now, as we step into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, I have a question. It's not for all of you. The question is really just for one of you. And the question is to Justin Abraham. Justin, how are you? Yes, you are. Now, we're familiar with that because Justin's, that's been his common reply, and it's certainly a true reply, and he's done that with countless numbers of Northsiders and prayed with countless numbers of Northsiders. But, but as we step into this next section, you're going to see that Jesus had the original blessing, <laughs> not to take any credit away from Justin, but Justin is quoting Jesus. So the first thing that Jesus does here in these first four Beatitudes is he extends an open invitation. Mercy, mercy. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, uh, the, the, there's eight Beatitudes in total. The first four, really, I think, if we view them in such a way, are rather an invitation to all of the people in this crowd to be part of an eternal kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And the, the word, uh, the, the invitation is extended to all the, the people and he's trying to, in these first four Beatitudes, give a little bit of the heart position of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. So let's talk about the word blessed because it's repeated so many times. What does that mean? Because usually when we hear the word blessed, we either are hearing and talking with Justin Abraham... Or if we're in a spiritual setting, we're speaking of someone who uses the word blessed to mean code for financial blessing. How are things going? Oh, really, really blessed at work. The business is going well. We were just so blessed. What that, that's code, that's spiritual code word for, you know, the, the money's coming in. Things are going quite well. The, you know, the assets are building up. And, and, and that's not always how it's meant. And some people say, well, blessed, blessed just simply means happy. That's all it means. It's a duck dynasty. Well, happy, happy, happy is what Jesus is preaching here. But that's, that kind of gets around the hem of the garment. The original word there doesn't, it's, it's a deeper than happiness, okay? Happiness is, you know, related to the root word uh, happenstance. It comes and it goes. Hey, have you ever been happy and then less than 24 hours been unhappy? I can, you know, Saturday night, enjoying Chick-fil-A, great. But then Sunday comes. We, we understand that happiness as an emotion comes and it goes. Now, I'm okay if you use the word happy. I've got no qualms with that. If you mean a deep, permanent happiness. The Bible word for that is joy. It, it is this deep, inward 
untouchable, unapproachable. It's an internal thing and it's an eternal thing and it's unaffected by the external things. Let me say that again. Blessed is an internal thing. It's an eternal thing and and it's unaffected by the external things. Blessedness is uh, this uh, idea that is closer to joy. Blessed is deep. Happy is a bit shallow. Blessed is consistent. All of you knew how Justin was going to answer that question because he's consistent in it. Blessedness is consistent. Now, that doesn't mean that every single day of Justin's life is happiness and ease. No, quite the opposite. Joy is consistent. Happy is sort of fickle. If you study it and you do a Bible word search, which is easy enough to do, you'll find that the word happy in most English translation never happens in the New Testament. Not once. But blessed, that term happens, occurs 82 times. And the reason why I hit on this point is because happiness can... (laughs) Happy can be dangerous. What I mean by that is the world says, well, God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to do what makes me feel good. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not making the case that Christians should be curmudgeons. I don't think we should be unhappy. What I'm saying is that what Jesus is talking about in blessing here is saying it's, it's, much, it's deeper, it's more mature, it's longer lasting than just happiness. Happiness comes and goes. The world says, do what makes you happy. Jesus says, do what makes him happy. So, we think now about blessedness of the condition of people who are in the kingdom. In fact, toward the end of Matthew, Jesus is going to say this about the end of the world. That this phrase is going to be, Uh, pronounced. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom for you, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Did you see that phrase there? You who are blessed. Okay? That doesn't always mean they're happy. As a first century Christian who were enduring persecutions by uh, Caesar, they were not always happy times, but they never lost the blessing. Of God, the favor of the Father. So, as we think now about the blessing, the deeper, untouchable condition of those who are followers of Jesus, let's look now about the invitation of people who are invited into the kingdom. He, he pronounces four things, and I've kind of summed them up there on this little box. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to come into the kingdom, you have to come empty. Poor in spirit doesn't mean that you're a dour, eeyore kind of person. Poor in spirit means emptying yourself. You come to the table of God with nothing to offer. You bring nothing that God needs and that God wants and that God said, I'd really like to get that person on the team. No, poor in spirit means you come knowing your spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. So come empty. 
Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told a story about a tax collector who was wicked and, and, and knew his sins. And when he came to, to God's presence, he stood far off. He wouldn't even look up at heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's poor in spirit. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you. I mean, I just, I've got it all. I, I, I'm not even like this complete sinner over here. I mean, I give and I fast. I, I go to church. I go to both services for extra credit. I'm here on Wednesday night. I, I've done all of the things. God, I just thank you for making me, me. And that's the opposite. As the old song goes, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Second, it, it, we, there's a calling to bless those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, there's two ways to view mourning. Uh, one is this temporary sadness, but this type of mourning is a deep lament, one that you experience like, like a funeral, especially if you've had to be in the position of losing someone so dear to you unexpectedly, a child or a spouse. And in that moment, there's this guttural kind of sorrow and sadness over that which cannot be undone. It's, it's a, a repentance, it's penitence, it's hating your sin, it's acknowledging that you're dead in your sins, and you're mourning the fact that you cannot undo it. The closest scriptural Description of this is 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Third, a call to be broken. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is one that gives us a little bit of trouble because meekness is usually equivocated with weakness. As my old college professor when he explained this, said, you need to understand that meek does not mean milk toast. Meek does not mean weak. Meek does not mean doormat. Meek, in fact, means putting all of your strength and your power and your might under the control of Jesus Christ. Meekness is a submissive spirit to an eternal God. It, it, it is the visual that you might that might be helpful to you is this mighty strong stallion, capable of pulling multiple tons of weight, and yet controlled by a rider who is five percent of his size, and he's controlled because there's a bit in his mouth, and the horse has been trained to yield to the bit. Meeks means submitting yourself and your strength to God's control. Uh, a biblical example is Moses, the meekest man who ever lived, uh, written by Moses, which is, always makes me laugh a little bit. But um, Moses, who murdered an Egyptian who would later plead for and pray for his siblings when they tried to usurp his authority. That's meekness. 
When Jesus is quoting, blessed are the meek, he's actually quoting Psalm 37, verse 11. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You'll really be blessed, if you want to do a little extra study, just to turn to Psalm 37 and read all of it. Because Psalm 37 describes the aptitudes of a fully, truly meek person. But I think meekness is just this picture of someone who's been broken, just like that horse, that stallion has been broken. And now he only goes the way his master desires. And finally, you're invited if you're spiritually starving. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or they will be filled. The hunger and thirst here is more than just desiring bread. Um, some of you after church will, will go and eat a meal. You can't eat guest lunch today, but you go have some meal, whether at home or in a restaurant, because you have this desire of your body continually needs replenishing, no matter how much you eat. Well, hungering in a spiritual way means to hunger and thirst for the manna of God, continually. People hunger and thirst for many things in this world that aren't food. They hunger for power, they hunger for authority, they hunger for success, they hunger for comfort, they hunger for happiness. But Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness. Peter would write this, on this matter, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I've got 10 pounds of content, and I've got about uh, two minutes to deliver it in. So, we're going to pause right here, and we'll continue next week. I want you to think about these four Beatitudes, the idea of blessing and the invitation that's extended to all. And I want to ask you, when it comes to Jesus, are you a, are you a fan of Jesus, or are you a follower of Jesus? I don't know if I've ever told you, I'm one of the biggest Kansas City Chiefs fans that, uh, that, that there's ever been. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, you won't find a bigger fan of the Kansas City Chiefs than me. Some of you are a little skeptical about that. You say, Toby, I, I've never heard you talk about the Chiefs. I've never, not sure that you, you know any of the players. That's not true. My favorite player on the Kansas City Chiefs is that quarterback, that Phil Mahomes guy. Toby, you don't know the players, you don't know the coach. I've never seen you wear any Kansas City regalia like John Dunham. I, 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 you don't even have red on today. Uh, that's not true. Not true. I see. Look right here. You didn't even notice. Yeah. Fancy, huh? See, I, I told you I was a fan. 
My, my love of the Kansas City Chiefs is like some people's love for Jesus. When, when it comes to the final day, some people are going to say, I'm Team Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Team Jesus. Hooray, Jesus. And, and some of us will look around and say, I, I never heard you talk about Jesus. I, I never heard you mention any of his word. I, I, I never heard you say, I, I never saw you mention him. I never saw you, 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 you didn't go to, to church. You didn't, you weren't part of the, but I never even, you never mentioned him. I, I never saw any actions that told me you were a Christian. You, you were only sort of a fan of Jesus when, on the times when everybody else showed up, you know, those, those special times. You see, I'm, I'm not really a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. Some people aren't really a fan or a follower of Jesus. The kingdom invitation is one that's offered to all of us. But you need to know that this kingdom is not something you can just fair, be a fair weather fan and truly be a part of the kingdom. <laughs> It's going to require commitment and dedication. You're going to pay a price. There's going to be some sacrifice involved. There's, there's going to be times when it's difficult and hard. Jesus is going to ask you to wear your gear all the time. Jesus is going to ask you to profess him before human beings. So I invite you to the kingdom. The greatest blessings you'll ever find are as being a part of the kingdom but you can't have it both ways. You can't live in two separate kingdoms. You, you can't go and watch the game this, this afternoon and, and, and root for the Chiefs every time they score and root for the 49ers every time they... You know, nobody likes a fan like that. But there's some people that try to straddle the fence when it comes to being a kingdom person. And Jesus calls us to live in the kingdom and live for the king. We'll finish this next week. I would invite you now as we get ready to sing this next song. Are you a part of the kingdom? Are you ready to be a part of the kingdom? Are you ready to make a commitment to the king? By being baptized into Christ. And, and identifying with the church and saying I'm ready to get to work in his kingdom. I hope that you are. And if you are, there's no better time to respond to that invitation than now. We're going to sing a song. You can go to the back. We'll f our shepherds will be at each door. If you wish to meet with them and make your need known, they'll be glad to help you. If you are a part of the kingdom and you're struggling and you need some encouragement, you need our prayers, we'd be glad to help you with that too. We'd be honored to help you if you need to respond to the invitation this morning. Won't you come as together we stand and sing?